Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Sociology, part of the New Books Network. My name is Richard Osijo. I'm an associate professor of sociology at the City University of New York. And today we're joined by Nora McKendrick. She is an assistant professor of sociology at Rutgers University, and she's going to talk about her recent book, Better Safe Than Sorry, How Consumers Navigate Exposure to Everyday Toxics, which was recently published by the University of California Press. Nora, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Richard. I'm happy to be here. Cool. So why don't you start by just telling us about yourself? What's your, 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 your background? How did you, how did you come to uh, get your degree in sociology? Uh, it took a bit of a circuitous path to sociology. Uh, I started as a conservation biology major in university, um, where that's when I first really became interested in environmental health and in environmental pollution. And when I was an undergraduate, I took a course in environmental sociology. And I remember, you know, almost jumping out of my chair and thinking, this is what I want to do. Because in environmental sociology, you look at sort of the political and social causes and consequences of environmental problems. So at that point, I decided to um, specialize in environmental sociology. And I did my, um, I did, first I did a master's degree um, at the University of Alberta, so I'm Canadian. Um, and then I moved on to do a PhD at the University of Toronto. And it was there that I began reading a lot more about, um, you know, bioaccumulation of chemicals through the food chain. So that means um, chemicals that are in our environment build up through the food chain and eventually get into human bodies. And I was reading um, the national newspaper at the time and noticing that more and more there was this message that um, the chemicals that are out there in our food supply, in our environment, can be avoided by making small what these articles called easy changes to our lifestyles. And I realized what was happening was a kind of precaution was being encouraged here, a precaution that it can be enacted at the individual level, a, a better safe than sorry strategy, which is, um, which is why I called my book what I called it. Um, and that's when I developed this concept of precautionary consumption, and then um, I began, to, uh, as I was doing my PhD, I became pregnant with my first child and was introduced to the world of motherhood and realized, wow, this is where precautionary consumption really is intense and is applicable to so many people. I saw, you know, in, in mother's groups and talking to other parents that everyone was thinking about this and motherhood seemed to be a key time that clued people into the contaminants in their food, in their consumer products and in the environment. 
And so I decided to do my dissertation on this transition to motherhood and how that heightens awareness of chemicals in the environment and uh, is an entryway into the practice of precautionary consumption. Yeah, so it's a really interesting entry point that you have. And you're engaging here with with consumption a lot, which has become such a popular topic in Mm -hmm. uh, sociology. really exploring how we, and especially, as you mentioned, women and, and mothers really negotiate the things that we buy, uh, when it comes to whether they're safe. And, and I was immediately drawn to, well, the title's great, but the, the subtitle, this just idea of just everyday toxics, because mm-hmm. at this point, as you mentioned, really everyone has synthetic chemicals in their bodies. Uh, the modern world yeah. makes it unavoidable. It's just really kind of a question of degree, uh, and type, I suppose. Uh, and the people who, have it worse, we can see by, you know, using the, you know, the sociological imagination by looking at some of mm-hmm. these big variables, the, the, of gender, of race, of class. So yeah, tell us what this, this landscape looks like of, of, I guess, pop of toxicity in our population. Sure. So you're right. Every single one of us has several hundred synthetic chemicals in our bodies. Um, these chemicals, began accumulating in our bodies at conception and just continues through the life course. And these are many of these chemicals come from our consumer products. So touching a computer that's been treated with some sort of uh, flame retardant or, you know, sitting on a couch that's been treated with a stain resistant coating or, um, again, has some sort of flame retardant in the cushions. But it also comes from the air we breathe and the water we drink and the soil that's used to grow our food. Um, So we accumulate this through a lifetime. And while all of us carry this, what's called a chemical body burden, some of us have higher body burdens than others, and that tends to vary by race, by social class, occupation, and geographic region. So people who live next to polluting industry or toxic waste sites or Superfund sites have much higher body burdens of certain compounds in their bodies, or people who work in occupations where they have to handle uh, Compounds that are potentially toxic or known to be toxic have higher body burdens. And we know that communities, low-income communities and communities of color tend to be located in places that are more polluted. So we're seeing um, higher chemical body burdens in those populations as well. Yeah, and with an increasing number also of possibly toxic products, which is we'll get to in a second, but uh, more toxic products more labels on products and more complicated Mm -hmm. labels at that. And, you know, really just this swirl of, of information, of misinformation, of claims, of counterclaims going on in, in the media and social media online. You, you've yeah. identified this trend of what you call this precautionary consumption or, you know, this sort of green, non toxic shopping, I suppose, or non-toxic consumption. Yeah. Um, and this is the book's real main contribution. And I, I love how you arrived at it, just the conceptual path by really deriving it from this idea of the precautionary principle 
as well as the rise of uh, the, the risk society that we're in now, the rise of mm -hmm. neoliberalism. Um, so, yeah. So tell us a little bit more about this idea, this, this precautionary consumption and uh, some of the conditions that have uh, led to this trend that we're seeing. Sure. You're, I, I just have to say, I love the, the expression of a swirl of information. I think that's a really nice way to describe all of the labels and information and advice we're all given about how to avoid exposure to toxics. But backing up a minute and just thinking about, well, what do I mean by precautionary consumption? I developed the term um, thinking about first the precautionary principle. So the precautionary principle was institutionalized in um, the 70s through the 90s in Europe, but also in the United States. And the precautionary principle is a policy ethic. And this policy ethic dictates that um, if there is a risk of harm, we will err on the side of caution to protect um, human health and the environment. So, for example, if we suspect that a chemical that is produced industrially say for um, to prevent the spread of flames or to coat um, wires to prevent them from overheating, if we suspect that a chemical like that might harm human health or the environment, even if we don't have conclusive evidence that it does harm human health or the environment, we'll ban that chemical. We'll stop its production in order to, pr in order to protect the public good. So the precautionary principle was a very successful policy ethic. It gradually began to be dropped in the United States, particularly under the shift to neoliberalism and the roll, rolling back of the environmental state. Meanwhile, in Europe, the precautionary principle became institutionalized in various environmental laws, but also in their laws um, regulating chemicals and chemical production. They have a law called REACH. Um, it's, a, it's a long acronym. Everyone just calls it REACH. And it's based on the precautionary principle. So if industry can't prove that a compound is safe, then they're not allowed to produce it. I mean, there are all kinds of exceptions, and it doesn't work perfectly. But it is an example of a law that's based on the precautionary principle. In the United States, the precautionary principle is considered um, very anti-science and anti-business. And we saw this attitude toward the precautionary principle evolve in the, in the 80s and 90s with the, the introduction of the neoliberal states. So we're thinking, you know, Ronald Reagan in the United States, Brian Mulroney in Canada, and Margaret Thatcher in the UK. And under the neoliberal state, the idea was that um, policy and what was best for society could be enacted through the market and that really government had to get out of the way. So we saw uh, these governments kind of ditch or kick the precautionary principle to the curb and give a lot of authority to industry to self-regulate. The idea that, well, industry will do what's best for the public because if they don't, it will hurt their bottom line. So this was a considerable uh, leap of faith in industry and industry's interest in protecting the public good. And in the United States, we see something that I call the safe intel story model. 
Now, just to back up a minute, precautionary consumption, or sorry, the precautionary principle is the idea that um, we're better safe than sorry. So we have to prove that something's safe before we use it. In the United States, it's flipped. It's safe until sorry. This means that we have something around, I don't know, it's 85 to 87,000 chemicals that are registered for use in the United States. Almost very, very small fraction of them have been thoroughly tested for their effects on human health and the environment. And in order to take one of those compounds off the market, the EPA has to prove that a chemical is harmful. So it's a, so a chemical is basically assumed to be innocent and released into the market, and it's up to the EPA to prove otherwise. Now, the burden of proof that the EPA is expected to meet is quite high, and often the EPA will not do this unless it's pressured by outside groups, which tend to be environmental groups or health advocacy groups. So as we see the EPA sort of allowing all of these chemicals onto the market with very little testing and very little oversight, consumers in response have been learning about the effect of everyday chemical exposure on their health and the health of their children and are internalizing a precautionary ethic, but very much at the individual level. And this is where precautionary consumption comes in. So this means standing in the supermarket, standing in the aisle, looking at an ingredient label and saying, okay, um, I don't want artificial flavors in my food, but I think natural flavors are okay. So, you know, even though, again, the FDA would say, well, artificial flavors are pretty much safe, the consumer is saying, no, not safe enough. So enacting a kind of precautionary ethic at the individual level. So this is where we see the rise of precautionary consumption, because we don't have precaution being enacted at a collective level by the state. So individuals have to use their own judgments. And for this reason, we see considerable variation in what people do in order to avoid chemicals. Some people find that it's are really not concerned about this at all and really aren't looking at labels and don't worry too much and have a lot of trust in what they buy. And then as I explain in the book, there are individuals who have really high standards of safety and are trying to avoid a whole number of compounds and chemicals that are on the market. And of course, as you mentioned, the people who feel this pressure to uh, engage in this form of consumption, the ones who I suppose kind of feel the individualized risk the most is women and particularly mothers, uh, the ones who this falls disproportionately on. Yeah, it's mothers especially. And going back to your, your comment about the risk society, with these kind of uh, risks that don't really respect boundaries, I mean, chemical body burdens are a really great example. And I think Beck even uses this example when he talks about the risk society and what it is. Chemical risks are risks that don't respect boundaries, whether those are geographic boundaries or whether they are um, corporeal boundaries. So boundaries between, you know, the skin and the air. These are chemicals that are ubiquitous. They're just, they're everywhere. They're universal. The other aspect 
um, that relates to the risk society is that we really don't know who's responsible for them. Who do we point the finger at when it comes to deciding, okay, you're responsible for cleaning this up or you're responsible for creating this problem in the first place? We have hundreds of chemicals in our bodies. They come from multiple manufacturers, multiple sources, multiple pathways of exposure. So it's not really clear who is responsible. In fact, called this organized irresponsibility is a feature of the risk society. So in this, in this context of you have ubiquitous risk, no one is really obviously responsible for creating this risk, risk and fixing it. It's mothers who are stepping in to do the work of trying to protect their children from chemical exposures. And they do this through shopping and they do this through precautionary consumption. So before we get into the, uh, the book a bit more, um, the, I want to wonder if you can comment on the data and how you collected it and how you organized it because we're dealing with toxic chemicals, you're dealing with regulations, you're dealing with regulatory bodies and agencies, you're dealing with these uh, uh, global NGOs, and of course you're dealing mm -hmm. with consumption and culture and gender and so on. So uh, mm -hmm. it's very easy. I thought you, you and it's very easy to have this get out of control or for readers to kind of get lost in some of this. I thought, but I thought you really, you organized it very well and structured it very well. So uh, tell us a bit about what kind of data you collected here and, and how you did it. What was your approach? It's a very interesting mixed methods approach. I thought that you, uh, that you used. Yeah, it's, there were a lot of methods that I used to write this book and I, I'm smiling and I'm laughing as you, as you talk about that because, um, there was a lot of research required to go into this book. And as I explained it at the beginning of the podcast, I've been following the science of chemical body burdens for quite some time. So I've already been, was already following, you know, the, the science and what um, people were, were finding and discovering that there is more and more what I would call a consensus that these chemicals are cause for concern and warrant strong action, strong regulatory action. So there was that piece of the research, just following the environmental health research to find out what people are studying, what are the chemicals of concern, and what are some of the health effects that are associated with chemical exposure. So there was that aspect. There was also um, the project of trying to understand how chemical regulation works in the United States. I had a fairly good idea of how it worked in Canada, and that was part of my, my dissertation. But having moved to the U.S., there was this whole new regulatory framework to understand. And I would say that was probably the most difficult part of writing this book, was I wanted to give readers a sense of this is where, if you're eating organic food, this is who regulates it. If you're worried about pesticide residues, this is the agency that's in charge of it. If we're thinking about chemicals that are used for other purposes, this is the legislation that, that is responsible for, um, for regulating all of those chemicals. What I discovered that it was, and you'll read, I, I, I don't know how many readers will really go deep into the second chapter of the book where I really lay this out. But I tried to give readers a roadmap about, of how our chemicals are regulated. And then uh, another method I used was I realized that the that environmental groups and 
particularly groups who are part of the environmental health movement, so who have environmental health as one of their key strategies or their key goals, that they were um, tremendously important in terms of promoting precautionary consumption and defining what good precautionary consumption is. So that involved tracking their activities from about 1995 to, I think I ended data collection around 2016. And so I collected hundreds of brochures and documents and scientific reports that these groups had produced to understand what scientific issues they were concerned about and then what kinds of precautionary consumption advice they were giving to the public. So that was another method I used. And then I realized, well, precautionary consumption, so it it relates to regulation, it relates to the environmental health movement, but precautionary consumption also happens within consumer spaces, the grocery store um, or the big box store. And I realized that Whole Foods Market would be really the ideal place to see precautionary consumption in action. It's, I think I call it a precautionary consumer paradise. And having moved to New York City, where surprisingly quite a few people do their regular everyday shopping at Whole Foods Market, and there are so many locations in the city, I was able to spend a lot of time in Whole Foods Market. So I spent um, a great deal of time recording store signage across locations in New York City. I visited other locations outside the city, too, just to see how similar um, brand, uh, different stores are. And there's considerable, like all chains, you know, Whole Foods Market um, stores are very similar from city to city or state to state. So I recorded all the store signage. And then I want became interested in the product package. And so that means like all the labels and product packaging on the things we buy. So I came up with a strategy to record all the different precautionary claims that appear on products sold at Whole Foods Market. What I consider a precautionary claim is um, something saying, you know, certified organic, USDA certified organic or BPA free or phthalate free. And I read up on some of the marketing research at the time to learn that something called the clean label trend was really hot and, and, and trending at the time. Clean label trend is the trend of telling consumers what is not in a product. So, you know, like no high fructose corn syrup, no phthalates, no this, no that. And what I realized was that a lot of products being sold at Whole Foods Market have these clean label claims and have these other kinds of claims of, of being signaling their toxic-free status. So I really wanted to get a sense of, okay, how many claims are there? <laughs> if I were to count all of them, how many would I find? And I found hundreds of them. And I, I mean, I document some of them in, in the book. Uh, so what I, so I look at this consumer paradise of precautionary um, consumption And then the last place where I I do, um, where I collect data and do research is I was interested, having done some of this work in Toronto with mothers there, is, well, what is the lived experience of precautionary consumption? What is it like to actually do it? How do mothers make sense of their responsibility, responsibility to protect their children from chemicals? 
are these mothers super helicopter parents who are highly anxious about everything their kid touches or puts into their body? Um, do they feel resentful? Do they feel anxious? Do they feel tired doing this work? And do they find it easy or difficult or somewhere in between? So I interviewed 30 women in the city, uh, a fairly diverse sample in terms of um, race and ethnicity. And uh, But what I did find was that most of the women who were willing to speak to me had fairly high levels of educational attainment. And I spoke to some women who were lower income, but I didn't manage to speak to women who were truly low income. So that means living at or below the poverty line and depending on um, social services or, or food benefits like SNAP benefits. So um, together in the book, I separate out these different methods by chapter to kind of tell the story of how precautionary consumption moves to regulation, the environmental health movement consumer spaces, and then into the lived experience of actually doing precautionary consumption on a day-to-day basis. Great. Thanks for that overview. It's, it's uh, an impressive analysis at these, at these different levels. So um, yeah, let's start with the, the regulatory industry then of the U.S. So we, we have these, mm-hmm. these big cases, right, in American history of these corporations and these business actors that deny that their products are harmful. So we have like the lead industry, which you mm-hmm. document a bit. Um, I could think of the tobacco industry. I could think of right. uh, the, the ozone layer deflecting chemicals that was a big topic in the 80s. And you know, there's a real populist tone to these cases that there's hmm. this, there's this ruthless corporation getting rich off of our health and yeah. they're, they're going to get regulated and brought to justice. Um, but these are these are really exceptional cases. And overall, so many of the products that we buy, as you show, are potentially or are actually very harmful, but they're also unregulated. So yeah. what, what is the landscape of safety today uh, in the U.S.? You gave us a little bit about the 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 history in the general proof of harm uh, Mm -hmm. models uh, evolution. Um, But yeah, tell us what consumers today are facing when they go shopping. So when a consumer goes shopping, chances are a product that they pick up has been falls under the regulatory authority of more than one agency. Um, The agencies that are in charge of looking over, overseeing the chemicals that we come into contact with on a day-to-day basis um, include the EPA, so the Environmental Protection Agency, the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And those agencies are required through various pieces of legislation that many of those pieces of legislation were introduced, you know, as early as the early 1900s through to the 1930s, updated in the 50s, rolled back in the 70s. Um, it's a it's 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 convoluted and it's very confusing. And I think even the people who are responsible for regulating the chemicals that we use are in some ways confused by, <laughs> you know, whose authority does this fall under? And often um, agencies have to work together and cooperate in order to um, come up with strategies to regulate chemicals because of how convoluted and complicated this regulatory landscape is. 
Um, so if you um, think about sort of um, organic food, certified organic food is maybe one of those items that consumers will come across that has the simplest or most clear regulatory structure that falls under the authority of the USDA. Um, and there are clear guidelines that the USDA comes up with to determine whether a farm or a product can be considered certified organic. That's very transparent. You can go onto the USDA website and find out what those guidelines are. Unfortunately, it's not the case for really any other consumer products that we come into contact with when it comes to pesticide residues, for example. In fact, I would have to look at the book to read to you how pesticide residues are regulated. We have, you know, the, the, um, I believe it's the FDA is involved a little bit here. And um, I know I'm going to get something wrong because it is so that we've got the FDA and the USDA and the EPA involved here. EPA is responsible for um, making sure that the pesticides that are used in agriculture are safe. Um, that's actually one example of where that proof of safety comes into play. But it's a, it's a, Def, their definition of safety when it comes to pesticides is different from other jurisdictions. And here I'm thinking of um, the European Union. So what the EPA considers safe exposure is very different from what the European Union thinks. And environmental groups point to the European Union and say, well, they've banned chemicals X, Y, and Z. Why haven't you? And the EPA says, well, they're safe. They're safe. We can use them. So that's one way of thinking of pesticides. So the ones that are sprayed onto our agricultural fields that um, agricultural workers are exposed to in very high doses, depending on what, um, what they're growing and what their role is in agriculture. But then pesticide residues are also regulated. So how much of a pesticide remaining on, on say a fruit or vegetable is allowed to remain and be sold to the public and be considered safe? Children's Health was actually instrumental in helping to create laws and regulations that lowered what was considered an acceptable pesticide residue on fruits and vegetables. Because at the time, research was emerging showing that children were especially vulnerable to pesticide residues. And um, so we saw much stronger regulation emerge. But even so, the authority to regulate and test pesticide residues is split among various agencies and is under the authority of different pieces of legislation. As I say, I would have to go back into my book and read to you from that section to really understand um, how, how that works or to really explain it clearly. Um, processed foods fall under the authority of the FDA and many of the ingredients that are added to our processed foods really don't have to go through much um, evaluation at all. And in fact, food manufacturers are able to put a lot of ingredients in and call them what we call grass chemicals are generally recognized as safe, which means that industry has decided it's a safe ingredient. And so they put it in and it really takes a concerned consumer group or a really powerful health study to get the, um, to get the FDA to take 
this chemical off the market and say that a company can't use it. So in fact, many of the things used in our processed foods have never been adequately tested for their effects on human health. Same with the chemicals used in our consumer products. Again, it's the safe until it's, um, it's the, it's, it's the, <laughs> I'm getting tripped up on my own language, but it's, it's the, um, safe until sorry model. So these things are assumed to be safe. So the things that go on into our computers, into our, our furnishings, into our children's toys, they're assumed to be safe until evidence um, emerges to show that it's harmful. And again, as I said before, that burden of proof is very high because industry has considerable power um, to pressure the EPA and other government agencies and to cast doubt on on studies that say that chemicals are harmful to health. Yeah, this is it's murky stuff, and thank you for <laughs> for wading through it all um, and giving us this uh, this this chapter. Um, all you listeners out there, when you buy the book, you'll you'll get all these uh, specific details uh, about where your <laughs> and, stuff comes from and and know that I regulated. I banged my head against the walls so many times writing that chapter, really trying to make sure I was getting it right. Um, and, and I, I hope I did. I'm sure there'll be some, some reader sometime is going to email me and tell me that I've made some mistake. Um, but know that, that this is probably one of the things I'm most proud of in the book, the fact that I've tried to really lay this out for readers, how it works. Well, I, I think you, you definitely succeeded with it. So we have, um, so we have, yeah, we have this environment here, this regulatory environment and, or lack of, I guess, which, mm -hmm. which you show really st had a benefit, I suppose, of, of spurring an environmental health movement with groups that follow this precautionary principle. And often yeah. they often do the work that the federal government really should be doing. So, um, what, what are some of the impacts that the, these, uh, groups have had? Well, these groups have had a huge impact on at least raising public awareness of the poor regulation of chemicals in this country. And much of this started with um, different scientists, biologists, advocates who worked within either the environmental movement or the environmental health movement who discovered that low doses uh, low dose exposure, that means just trace amounts of exposure to a particular compound could cause reproductive or developmental abnormalities in either humans or the first research really showed that these reproductive abnormalities happened in amphibians and in fish. And many of these activists knew that if, if this is affecting wildlife, at really low levels, we may be seeing effects in children or in adult humans. And they began to sound the alarm to say that this is something the government should pay attention to. And I should also mention that uh, in my timeline, I really show this happening you know, around the 1990s. But I will say that Rachel Carson in her book, Silent Spring, began to hint at this a little bit, that not just high-level exposures to chemicals could cause um, health problems in humans or disrupt ecosystems. But she began to hint that even low-dose exposure, so trace, trace, trace amounts, could have an impact on our health. 
This is really what spurred the environmental health movement to start promoting precautionary consumption and promoting precautionary consumption to women and, well, parents specifically, is the um, from their research and their collaborations with universities and other researchers, they were concerned that small levels of exposure um, in utero could lead to developmental problems, cognitive problems, reproductive abnormalities, um, birth defects, and other health problems. And so the movement began mobilizing around producing precautionary consumption advice. They don't use that word. They use the word safe shopping. And they produced vast amounts of advice and tip sheets directed at pregnant women or parents. But as I went through these documents, I realized that really it was mothers who, more than fathers, who were the target audience. And you can tell simply by some of the language that's used or the photos that accompany some of these brochures and the fact that many of these um, tips and advice for safe shopping are directed to people who are pregnant or breastfeeding. Um, So um, biological women, in other words. And this part of the environmental health movement is really visible. So if you go to the Environmental Working Group, which is a major environmental health movement group here in the United States, you go to their website, you'll see that there are, you know, dozens of safe shopping guides that they provide. They also do um, what's um, called the Dirty Dozen List, which many of the people that I interviewed and that I talked to know about, which tells you basically the 12 most um, polluted fruits and vegetables in the market, so the ones with the highest pesticide residues. Um, These groups have a very, their public facing um, work is very much about safe shopping and directed to women and mothers. What we don't see so much, which is sort of the backstage work, is all of the lobbying and pressure they're putting on government to introduce safer, um, or to introduce regulation to um, take many of these dangerous compounds off the market. These groups are also pressuring manufacturers and retailers to improve, um, to clean up their act. So the environmental health movement or the, yeah, the environmental health movement really started on this idea of the strong precautionary principle. They promoted that and then maintain that and at the same time began promoting safe shopping as a form of public mobilization to get people aware of what was going on to help protect people. And what they found was that as they were informing people of the, their chemical body burden, so the chemicals present in their bodies, people wanted to know what to do. You know, you find out that you have several hundred chemicals in your body. You don't want to just sit back and say, well, okay, <laughs> and, and, and sit with it. You want to know what to do. So these groups were in a good position to give all kinds of advice. Now, I problematize that a little bit and say, on the one hand, we should be grateful for all this work that these groups are doing because they're really filling in the gap that our regulatory agencies should should be should be filling. They're testing products to see if they contain harmful chemicals. They're keeping government on their toes. They're calling out manufacturers and retailers who are doing a bad job 
of protecting our health. But at the same time, they do create a very high standard of precautionary consumption that I think is very difficult for the average person to enact. And many of these tips are presented as easy and simple, but if you look at all of the advice altogether, and I think I recorded about 60 actions altogether, if you look at every brochure that these organizations have produced, it is a lot of work. And this work tends to fall in domains that are women's responsibilities. So cooking, shopping, and cleaning. Even though men are contributing more to this unpaid work, it's still women who are doing most of it. So this tends to be women's labor. And it's a lot of extra labor that is added to existing unpaid care work. So speaking of the average person, an average consumer, let's go to Whole Foods now, Mm -hmm. Um, which is where if we can say precautionary consumption has become mainstreamed and a bit normalized, it's certainly in probably organic foods and Mm -hmm. the place that is built on this idea being Whole Foods, where there's this feeling you say that the store gives off that you could be safe here, not sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, They've really created this uh, narrative around this really around this idea, around this principle. So the people you studied then focusing on the consumers, how did they receive this message? How did they receive this narrative uh, from shopping and Whole Foods? Well, of the people I interviewed, most of them had been in a Whole Foods. Again, I think this is really unique to New York City. And I'm clear in the book, if you read, (laughs) if you're, you know, interested in my methods, you can go to the methodological appendix, where I'm pretty clear in stating that this is not a representative sample of New York City mothers. This is a very unique group. It's a qualitative study. So I wasn't interested in finding a representative sample. I was interested in illuminating or kind of bringing attention to this lived experience. What I found among the mothers that I interviewed was that many of them had been in Whole Foods and shopped there, if not once a week, maybe once a month. And some of them were very skeptical of Whole Foods market. And they looked at the store signage and they looked at the claims on packages and they thought, oh, this is fancy marketing. And they called the store Whole Paycheck, even though they found ways to shop there affordably they could they could see through that Whole Foods branding and were quite skeptical and really didn't enjoy shopping there, but maybe it was the grocery store that was closest to them that offered the most options when it came to non-toxic and organic foods. Other women I interviewed found those um, safety assurances within Whole Foods to be really useful and to be really helpful. So they were looking at, I mean, Whole Foods has so many of them. And um, I also should mention that I studied Whole Foods before it was acquired by Amazon. And I'm continuing to study Whole Foods now in that transition. But in the time that I was studying Whole Foods, it was prior to that acquisition. And it was at the time that Whole Foods was really expanding and was in its kind of its, its last really big push to expand its, its presence throughout the country. And it was opening new stores like every week all over the country. Um, and it has various safety standards. So if you're walking through the store and you go to the cleaning products aisle, for example, you can see that 
some cleaning products will be rated a green and others will be rated a yellow or an orange. And this, you know, indicates how safe the product is safe in terms of environmental chemicals and, you know, endocrine disruptors, uh, possible carcinogens, artificial fragrances, etc. Um, so some of the mothers that I interviewed were looking at that and they were maybe looking also at the meat rating system that Whole Foods has. So it has, I think, a rating from, I think it's one to five. And, you know, if I think a five is the best. And that means that, you know, this is an animal who lived like an incredibly happy life, you know, fed organic grain and was probably grass fed and who knows, like was treated so well. And then on level one is um, an animal product that came from slightly okay conditions, maybe, and Whole Foods is very careful to market this as better than you would find at another grocery store, but not the best. So we had, I had mothers who were looking at that and felt like they, if they could see that rating system and it had been approved by Whole Foods Market, then it was probably better than the meat they could buy at their local grocery store. Many of the mothers I talked to, in fact, all of them hated their local grocery store. So that means the, the grocery store that served their neighborhood. And this, in fact, is similar to what I found in Toronto, too. There's, you know, certain certain grocery stores are shoppers just find to be either they call them dirty, disgusting, too expensive, or they don't carry the right products. Whole Foods Market, on the other hand, generally they enjoyed shopping there. Everything is clean. It's it's um, laid out really well. It's clearly signed. There's a lot of availability of whatever product you want. So the women that I interviewed, even the ones who were skeptical of Whole Foods Market, generally enjoyed the experience. And Whole Foods works very, very hard to create that experience for consumers. And while Whole Foods Market, I should say, anyone living in New York knows that Whole Foods Market has been written up for health and safety violations. They seem like really clean stores, but even Whole Foods Market has, you know, cockroaches and all the other um, joys of a New York City grocery store. Um, but it certainly creates the impression of being a very safe and clean and almost gourmet experience. Yeah, so as you've said a few times now, you know, women and uh, mothers obviously are still uh, doing most of the child raising, most of the shopping, most of the mm -hmm. cooking. And, you know, they're, they're still having to deal with these societal expectations to perform these tasks within their families. So how did the women you study deal with them in this context of a deregulation environment uh, of everyday toxins, of the proliferation of labels, and of all of these different choices that they feel the burden to have to sort through uh, in order to basically provide their families with with a safe environment? They, for many of them, well, for some of the women I interviewed, this awareness of of the of unregulated chemicals and the ubiquity of chemicals in the consumer landscape or the retail landscape, um, even an awareness of having a chemical body burden. For some of these women, it began before pregnancy. For, um, for some of them, it started in college. They took maybe they took a course in university where they learned about this, or um, you know they started talking to other people who were 
interested in healthy eating or were involved in the environmental movement. For many of the women, it was at that point in college when they're moving out of the dorm, out of dorm life into their own apartment and maybe cooking for themselves for the first time and having control over what they eat. And the concern about chemicals coincided with um, trying to lose weight or this drive for thinness. So this is really where kind of the label reading and paying attention to what's going into the body really begins is in this drive for thinness and maintaining sort of the, the thin ideal. This is when women learned, the women I interviewed anyway, learn to read a label and think about what was in their food and the impact that was having on, on their, their body weight, but also on their health. Then when they became pregnant, for some of them, it was in preparing the body for pregnancy. So this was for women who were planning pregnancies or maybe um, contending with infertility and trying to improve their fertility. They would go through a sort of detox phase where they would try to avoid all conventional, that means not raised organically um, food. And they would switch to all organic food, all non-toxic products, and really try to cleanse and purify their bodies before they even attempted pregnancy. For other women, it started during pregnancy when they were thinking about what they were eating and putting in their bodies. I had one woman I interviewed talk about how she's making um, children from scratch. And even though when she was pregnant, she knew she could eat more calories than she normally eats and she could indulge in fatty foods, she decided not to because she was really concerned that that might have um, an ill effect on on her her babies. So we see this happening before pregnancy. We see this happening during pregnancy or breastfeeding or introducing first foods to children. So some women were really concerned about the quality of their breast milk and had read about how chemical residues are in breast milk. So as the body prepares for pregnancy, but also for breastfeeding, it mobilizes um, fat stores within the body, and that releases any kind of, any synthetic chemicals, industrial chemicals that were that are stored in the body. So stored in our bones or in our fat deposits, and this can be um, transferred through breast milk. And so these women were really worried about what they were giving to their children, knowing that breastfeeding is still the is still the the best way to feed infants, but concerned that their breast milk was contaminated. So many of them switched to organic during that moment. Most, if not all of them, thought about it when they were introducing first foods to children. And if you go through grocery stores today, you'll see that most of the infant foods, so the um, either pureed foods or rice cereals, these are organic, certified organic. And I think that's because manufacturers realize that this is what mothers want. They want certified organic foods for their kids. So many of these women started introducing organic um, in in early, you know, at around six months to a year. And for some of the women I interviewed, this continued and the whole family switched to sort of a, like a certified organic non-toxic diet. For other women, they what they would do is they would buy organic for the child or for the baby, but they would eat conventional um, food. They and their partner would eat that in order to save money. So there was this real kind of um, prioritization given to children 
um, where children have the best foods and the parents eat sort of what, whatever is left over the conventionally produced food. Um, there were some women that I interviewed who really couldn't, you know, they were stressed. They were, they had so much going on in their lives. They just couldn't think about about this sort of thing. So they really would switch. Maybe the one thing everyone seemed to do was buy certified organic milk. And that might be the one thing that they do. Um, many of the women I interviewed, especially since I was doing so many of my interviews during the spring and summer, were thinking a lot about sunscreen. And again, going back to those, um, the environmental working group and the environmental health movement, they have been very successful at raising public awareness of the things that go into our sunscreen that may not be so good for our health or for the health of the environment. So I spoke to many women who had like several different kinds of sunscreen. There was the eco-friendly sunscreen for the kids and then the conventional sunscreen for the adults. So I saw a whole range of precautionary consumption routines and the entry into this often started in college or prior to pregnancy, but it really became actualized and much more intense and much more serious once they had children in their lives, either when they were feeding children their first foods or breastfeeding or slathering sunscreen on them for the first time. To go into this a little bit more deeply, I think a really great contribution of the book is your uh, analysis of the role of social class. And the idea is that precautionary consumption is practiced by people from a, a broad range of social class backgrounds, uh, but uh, wealth still is a key factor in influencing how people can approach precautionary consumption given the high cost of many products where they're often located, such as in a Whole Foods that may not be near you. Um, the time it takes to just to learn about, to shop for, mm -hmm. to buy certain products. So from your analysis, then just tell us how uh, cons precautionary consumption varies and looks different for people who are from these different social classes. Sure. So one thing that I wondered throughout doing this work and this research was, well, surely precautionary consumption is something that really only rich people do because you do need extra money to afford some of these products. Some of these products are a lot more expensive, but over time, that price differential between the certified organic product and the conventional product, it has been shrinking, at least for some things. Um, so we're seeing organic become more accessible. And in fact, even though I study Whole Foods Market in the book, I'm, I make the point that other grocery stores now have their own generic organic lines. Safeway has it. Um, Kroger's has it. ShopRite has it. Um, so other grocery stores are introducing their organic line. And in some cases, they're moderately affordable. So this means that in terms of just plain affordability, precautionary consumption doesn't just depend on wealth. Now, for sure, if you're living at or below the poverty line or even, even above the poverty line, um, you can't prioritize even a few extra cents for an organic product if you can't put food on the table. But what I did realize was for lower income families. So these are families who are above the poverty line, but in New York City, it means making anywhere sort of between like 50 and $35,000 a year. You're above the poverty line, but 
it's tough to make ends meet on an income like that for a family of, of four, that those families were able to still practice precautionary consumption, but what they had was time. So through various strategies, they were able to leverage whatever free time they had to find the best bargains on precautionary items or on these non-toxic certified organic items. So I spoke to women who were able to, they had flexible jobs, they were either working part-time or they worked at certain times of the day and they scheduled their shopping so that they could go to two or three different stores. So Costco, for example, um, to get certain organic items that they knew to be very affordable there. Um, to a regular grocery store to get other items they knew to be affordable there, and then to Whole Foods Market where they they were able to find affordable organic items. One thing Whole Foods Market has done in the last several years is really ramp up their, they have this low-cost generic brand called, um, I think it's called 365, Whole Foods 365. And some of their those 365 products are are organic, or at least they're a little bit more I'm going to use my air quotes here, natural or non-toxic. And so many of these shoppers knew how to look for those things. I had some shoppers who looked at Whole Foods Market flyers and found would go to Whole Foods when certain products were on sale. And these were women from all kinds of backgrounds, women working in working class jobs, women who weren't really concerned about chemicals until they developed an illness or they were concerned about a child. But what these women had to invest was time, the time to go to multiple stores to do this shopping, the time to do the price comparisons. What all of the women across social class had also was time to do the research to know what was safe to buy. Even though there are all kinds of these, you know, safe shopping guides and top 10 tips to avoid toxins. Uh, even though those things exist, there's still it, it's it involves time to just find those tips and sort through the multitudes or the swirl to use the word you used earlier of of advice and information out there. But overall, what I'm finding is that precautionary consumption is becoming more mainstream. It is not just the practice of affluent upper middle class white women um, and one thing that I'm I'm interested in looking into more is why when we think of this organic consumer, many people who've talked to me about my research are envisioning, you know, this white upper class woman. And I think that may have been the case when organics first took off and were more sort of a niche market and, you know, much more expensive than they are today. But I think by doing that, we're ignoring Um, people of color, um, so Latino or Latinx um, consumers, black consumers who are also concerned about the chemicals they're putting in their bodies and are looking for organic products. But we sort of miss because we're thinking about this consumer as someone who is white and who is upper class. Um, So some of the women that I talked to, women of color, were very concerned about their chemical exposures and were looking for non-toxic products. Some of them spoke in indirect ways about sort of the stigma attached to shopping either on food stamps or shopping 
for these products on a limited budget. And so some of the women I talked to made a real effort in their interview with me because I'm, I'm white and I'm, I'm upper middle class as a professor to impress upon me the importance of the work that they're doing and which I interpreted as a way of, of fighting back against the stigma that, that organic shopping is um, an unreasonable luxury. And so for these women, unlike the white women I interviewed, they really had to justify, they felt at least in the interview setting, they had to justify why they were buying the organic foods for their children and how important it was. Whereas the white women that I interviewed explained to the, this to me as just, well, this is just another part of mothering. And in fact, we're more likely to talk about how they weren't doing enough and they were failing at motherhood. So I noticed really subtle differences in social class, but also in race in terms of how how the women I interviewed approach precautionary consumption. Yeah, it's, it's a really rich analysis and something that I hope that others uh, pick up and, and try to uh, build upon. So moving forward then, what do you see are the most significant limitations of precautionary consumption? And, and what are some alternatives that we can pursue to uh, reduce and perhaps even eliminate these, these universal risks toward our health from the products we buy? Sure. So the, when I first started writing about precautionary consumption, it came from a very skeptical viewpoint of, well, is this really helping? Is this helping everybody? Can we, can we eventually have a cleaner environment through precautionary consumption? So if all individuals really applied themselves and were the best precautionary consumers they could be, would we see like noticeable global declines in chemical production and in the chemical body burden. And I approach that from a very skeptical perspective. What I'm learning now is we, especially as we see what's happening with environmental regulation in this country at this moment, where it's being rolled back, where there's all kinds of science saying that certain pesticides are unsafe, yet the EPA is going ahead and authorizing it anyway, is that, Really, when we look at it, maybe precautionary consumption is our only option right now or working through retailers or specific manufacturers, pressuring them to stop using certain compounds and to introduce safer compounds into the products they make. But ultimately, if our goal is environmental justice, that means protecting everyone, regardless of social class, geography, race, but protecting everyone from environmental harms and providing them with environmental goods, so a, a clean environment, then what we need is broad, universal, wide-scale regulatory change. We need an unbiased democratic entity, so government, government at least how it should work. We need that entity, entity to introduce regulation based on the strong precautionary principle and that begins taking many of these compounds off the market and introducing much more stringent standards for determining safety. So when industry is at the drawing board, thinking about what to produce, thinking about the new product to put on the market, impacts on health and the environment is one of the first priorities that they are told to consider in developing so it becomes part of innovation. And we're seeing this um, to some extent in, in something called green chemistry, which it has, it's getting more investors, but 
there's certainly much more potential for growth there. But in order to invest more in green chemistry, in order to have safer chemicals and take those chemicals, take harmful chemicals off the market, we need strong policy. And I know I say in the book that I know it seems like a big ask and it seems like something that might never happen. But as far as I'm concerned, it's the one thing that can protect all of us. And by all of us, I mean communities next to factories that make our consumer products, workers who handle these materials every day or work in the the fields um, that grow our food. So if we think of geography, race, social class, occupation, we really need one authority that, that protects all of us from chemical exposure. And that precautionary consumption is an imperfect strategy because it's most accessible to people who have some money, but also time to do it and access to the right stores. It's also imperfect in that it's very momentary. So one day you go into the store and you're able, maybe you have a bit more money that day or time, or you've just listened to this podcast and you're freaked out about chemicals and you go in and you buy lots of organic things. Well, for that moment, Maybe you have reduced your your exposure to chemicals. And, and certainly if we were to test your body after consuming all of those things, we would notice a drop in certain residues, um, certain chemical residues. But that strategy has to be maintained consistently over the long term in order to have uh, a con- like this consistent long-term effect. And there are very few people, I think, who can do that, especially in families where maybe both parents work or in single parent families where there just isn't the access to time and what I call like the mental energy of keeping track of all of this. So in the book, I push, you know, this concept of environmental justice and, and I, I make the point that we do need stronger regulation, but realistically, I think what we're going to see is manufacturers Certain manufacturers respond to consumer pressure. They'll do it on a chemical by chemical basis. So they'll consumers will be concerned about chemical, chemical like BPA or certain kinds of phthalates, and they'll take those out of their products, but they may keep them in other products. And I think we'll also see certain retailers um, introduce higher standards determining, you know, um, Uh, what they bring into the store. And we're seeing some retailers do this, but again, it's imperfect. You know, they're improving their products on one end of the store, but on the other end of the store, we still see a lot of questionable compounds being, being brought in and then being used in the consumer products that they sell. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, aiming high with a a big (laughs) ask for um, possible solutions. So, so thank you for that. And and now I, I want to know, do you have any writing habits? Do you, anything you like to do hmm. when you write? <laughs> yeah, I, to write, I find that I, even though as a professor, you know, you have in at least in the summer, you have flexible time and you can work from home. I, I often end up going to the library to work. So I have access to, I work out at Rutgers, but I, um, but I live in New York City, and so I make use of the various university libraries in the city. So I find actually getting away from from home to be the best place to work. And I know a lot of people work really well in the morning with their writing, but I'm more of an evening writer 
which is difficult for me as a mother of young kids in that my evening hours are spent with them or I'm usually too tired to do any writing. So I found that by sequestering myself in the library and turning off my Wi-Fi, um, I'm able to get a lot of a lot of my writing done. So that's that's the one trick that has worked for me. Cool. So before we let you go, why don't you tell us what you're working on now? Does it build from this book at all? Is it a new direction? Yeah, the next project comes from the book. It was um, as I was writing the chapter on the environmental health movement I, and thinking about all of the work that they've done and the science that they've produced. I'm really interested in something called endocrine disruptor theory, which is the idea that really low doses or trace amounts of exposure to a chemical can have effects on our endocrine system, so our, on our hormone regulation. That means that we can be ex we can experience negative effects from chemical exposure at doses that aren't technically considered toxic, at least according to the EPA. This theory for a long time was very controversial. It was considered activist science. It was considered contested science. It was considered hogwash by some, um, you know, regulators and certainly by industry. But over time, I'm seeing a gradual acceptance of this theory. And in fact, it's moved and become part of reproductive medicine. So that means that um, researchers who work in human reproduction, either looking at fertility, um, birth defects, um, and the health of infants and pregnant women are incorporating endocrine disruption theory into their practice. They're developing guidelines for doctors, and they're urging um, governments to ban certain compounds because of the effect they have on the endocrine system. So my question that I'm looking at now is, well, what happened? How did it go from being this contested activist science that started really in wildlife biology to a more or less accepted theory that's being applied in reproductive medicine? So I'm at the moment, I'm interviewing people who are really key in helping that theory transition over from wildlife biology into reproductive medicine. So that's what's keeping me busy now. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Nora. More importantly, thank you for this book. Great piece of work and uh, good luck going forward. Thanks, Richard. Thank you for having me on the podcast. 